All right. We're back with the first episode of the Hybrid Canine Podcast. I think that's what we're going to call it. So right now, we're on Instagram Live. And we're doing like a quick Q&A because I just finally got this set up, sorted out, and um, I'm excited to kick this off. I see some familiar friends in here. This, If you have questions, this is the time to ask me. You'll be on the first episode of the Hybrid Canine Podcast. And so um, I kind of wanted to treat this as like a call-in show. Um, I've always thought that'd be kind of cool to have like a call-in radio show where someone could call in and just ask a question live. And it's a way to bring value. I think a lot of people benefit from hearing the circumstantial experiences of other people out there. And so um, that's kind of what I want to try to to work on with this. And so this is the first episode. It'll be an ongoing project and uh, we'll see what it turns into. So Elizabeth Craig has the first question. My dog bolts out of the house every time my two-year-old opens the door and she is eventually going to get by a car. Help. Well, Elizabeth, I'm really glad that you asked this question because this is actually one of the first things and one of the most fundamental things that I think a dog needs to learn. Um, it's the first thing I like to work on, and it's actually a very simple thing to work on. Um, it's not always easy, but it is quite simple. Uh, we call this impulse control. And impulse control is extremely important for the reason that you just mentioned. We don't want anything bad to happen to our dog, but it's also very valuable for our dogs to have a level of critical thinking, right? We want them to not just run out the door, right? We want them to let the cogs turn a little bit and make the decision for themselves that, hey, you know, maybe it's better to sit here and get permission, right? And so something that you can do, first of all, you should, if you're not crate training your dog, that's something you should also be doing. But um, when your dog is coming out of the crate, a lot of times we have the tendency to get excited, open the door, welcome them with open arms, give them a ton of affection. They start coming out of the crate, you know. You get home, they're already buzzing in the crate, ready to get out. Maybe they're barking, all this other stuff. If you're doing the crate training, what I want you to do is when you open the door, I want you to kind of open it a little bit, right? And if your dog starts to immediately run out, just shut shut the door right back on on his or her face, right? And it doesn't need to be a slam in the sense that you're trying to necessarily, you know, smack your dog in the face, right? What you want to do is just get them to be a little superstitious about whether or not the door is going to remain open or close back on their face, right? And so. The idea here is that you rinse and repeat that process, right? When the dog's coming out of the crate. And um, what you want to wait for them to do is to sit down and kind of patiently wait. And when you can open that door and they sit there for even just a few seconds, I want you to give them the release word break um, or whatever other marker that you would like to use to indicate that your dog is released from that command or released from the crate. Now, this is something that you can also practice at really any threshold, right? So um, it's very easy to practice in the crate, but for instance, if you were going outside, um, when you're when you open the door, you know the best thing to do would be to do that same process, right? To open the door just a just a little bit, and if your dog starts to indicate that they're about to just try and fly out the door, just close it back on 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 the face, right? Um, this is going to be a little bit challenging, right? Because as you mentioned, you have a two year old, right? And so it's, it's perhaps going to be hard to make sure that your two-year-old understands this concept of teaching the dog impulse control, right? I think it's fair to say that a lot of two-year-olds are also working on their impulse control. So this is a situation where it would be very responsible and although tedious, uh, probably a good idea to have a leash on your dog in the house if they are out as well as if your two-year-old is out. Um, And that way you can make sure that you have eyes on your dog and uh, you can, you know, keep your dog under control if your two-year-old has a propensity to go and open the door, right? and that means that when you want to practice these skills, that you should be practicing them, you know, when your two-year-old's not around, 
Um, you can practice them, you know, very specifically with your dog. And this is going to carry over into a lot of other aspects of life. Not only is it going to teach them to think before they pass through various thresholds, but it's going to teach them the, the general concept of just thinking before they act, right? And that's going to oftentimes help them to make better decisions overall. Um, just as so much as it helps us as people, you know, uh, we benefit a lot from thinking before we speak, thinking before we act. This is a valuable skill for dogs to learn as well uh, that they can vastly benefit from. So um, I can understand and empathize with um, the worry that your dog could get hit by a car, you know, especially if your two-year-old's opening the door and, you know, um, they're getting out of the house and things like that. That can be a very scary thing to experience, but I think it's something that can be um, easily overcome with a little bit of diligence. And once your dog understands that concept, they're generally going to learn that very quickly and um, pick up on that. And it's a easily generalized skill. So I hope that that helps. How important is it to, uh, Renee Marie asks, how important is it to crate train a puppy? Well, uh, and then she followed up by saying, I did not crate train my dog and it seemed fine. Um, to be honest, I think that crate training a puppy is an extremely valuable skill, right? Um, a lot of times people tend to get into this discussion of, well, I didn't do this thing and my dog turned out fine. Um, that's, you know, and that's okay, right? But when we talk about, hey, we've got a blank canvas, right? How can we set this dog up to have the highest likelihood of success with the least amount of effort, right? Great training. So it's a great life skill, right? Because not only is it, not only is it a place where your dog is going to cultivate a sense of calm and peacefulness, but it's a skill that, you know, inevitably they're going to have to have at some point, right? Um, there's going to be times where you're going to need to take your dog or your puppy to the vet. Uh, there are times that you may need to take your dog to a groomer where they're going to be crated. They might need to be boarded overnight. Um, if your dog has practice with the crate, understands the crate, and sees it and contextualizes it as a safe and peaceful place, your dog is going to have a much easier time, right? Um, how many of us, even as people, have been in a new situation where it's made us very anxious and um, nervous, and that's affected our behavior or our ability to perform at the highest level because we're distracted by the, our environment, right? Um, so crate training is a valuable life skill. Is it absolutely imperative? No, I, you know, absolutely. There are lots of people that have had success without uh, crate training their dog. But if you can afford even a modestly priced crate, I think it's a very valuable skill and it will, come, uh, it will have a lot of utility um, in your immediate life and in your future life with your dog. So I would highly recommend it. Little Canine Trainer asks, what made you start dog training? Well, it's actually a pretty interesting story. So um, to understand how I got started with dog training, I'd have to take you back to when I was about uh, 18 and 19. And when I was 18 and 19, I was obsessed with fitness. Uh, it was the first time in my life that I really felt like I had found something that I was really naturally good at and that I also had this really strong drive and curiosity that made me want to overachieve. Um, throughout school, you know, I wasn't a, I, I never performed as a student to my highest ability because I just didn't feel compelled uh, to do my best um, for whatever reason, right? And I think many of us, especially millennials and Gen Z can resonate with that. Um, but when I found fitness, when I was 18 and 19, I, I experienced a bad back injury. I was no longer part of any team sports because I was in college. I just went all in on the gym and, um, you know, I really wanted to 
develop a physique that I was proud of. And this led me to um, basically deep diving into the fitness industry, which later turned into me becoming a personal trainer for a period of time. And as a personal trainer, I learned a lot about how to work with people. I learned a lot about how to create programming um, and specifically programming that people could actually adhere to and find success with. And when I when I started doing that, I felt a new sense of passion that wasn't just um, fitness for myself, but it was really in a really this passion for helping other people um, and getting to be a part of their journey. Right? Um, it's fun, obviously, to have a have a personal transformation, but I found a lot of joy and um, fulfillment. Right and getting to be a part of other people's transformation and getting to see that aha moment and get them to the point where they felt uh, confident to to take the baton and run the rest of the race on their own. Um, So I give that context to say that I did that for quite some time. And during that time period, um, which was about 2011, 2012, um, online fitness training became very popular. And so uh, I would say that I was part of a community of online trainers at the time that began building online courses and really evangelized the concept of being able to um, do personal training remotely. So I was creating programming and nutrition protocols and things like that and using different softwares and technology to really give people a good experience virtually all over the world. I remember at one point I was training an entire gym pretty much, it felt like, all the way in Australia, people I'd never met, and they were some of my best clients. Um, so anyway, I provide that context to say that, um, in about 2019, 2019, um, after fitness, I was a marketing consultant for, you know, about six to seven years, worked with all different kinds of personality brands and big influencers in the fitness space and other industries. And, um, at the time, um, I also had my two dogs, Atlas and Aurora. Rest in peace, Aurora. Um, she unfortunately passed away a little over a year and a half ago now. Um, but when that happened, or when I had my dogs, right, I didn't quite understand, you know, how to manage some of their behavior, uh, you know. And at the time, I had a partner um, that uh, we had our dogs trained. And when the dogs came out of training, she started learning a little bit from another trainer that I went to high school with. And from there, um, when my agency started to wind down and uh, my partner had to go and, uh, you know, she had to find some part-time work, she's working at a big training facility and, you know, wasn't really making a ton of money. And based off of my marketing experience and brand building, it's like, you know what, I think we should just start our own training company. Why don't you just train dogs out of our house? You know, I knew this was a popular business model um, from being friends with my buddy from high school and just knowing other trainers and doing some research online. So, um, made a YouTube video about how to start a, a training business and, or just how to start a business kind of as a, as a joke almost. And what ended up happening was that, um, because of the unique strategy that I implemented from what I'd done in my marketing agency, uh, we were able to have a lot of very rapid success in generating clientele and, you know, building an online audience. Um, and before you knew it, we were booked out you know, we booked out, we were doing cool collaborations and all kinds of stuff. And so over the next three years, I found myself um, realizing, right, that the dog training space is essentially a very similar business model to uh, fitness training. It was just about a decade behind. Um, You know, the fitness industry is just a much bigger market than the dog training industry. And so essentially what I started doing was developing online courses with my partner at the time for uh, dog training, right? 
And so um, as we did this, right, um, I found myself, just as I was curious in fitness, very curious about dog training, very curious in how to expand my education. Um, I met great people such as Jerry Bradshaw and started attending seminars and um, getting around all different kinds of trainers, uh, working in subcontracting trainers to support us with the workload that we had, building facilities, touring facilities. Um, and through that process, uh, got to work with a lot of dogs, got to work with, I'd say probably about a hundred dogs um, in my own home, you know, as a part of the training process. And so um, that's how I started uh, getting into training dogs. And I fell in love with it. And, I, and just as I fell in love with um, being a part of people's transformation in their personal life and their fitness, I've found a, a deep passion and level of fulfillment in being a part of people's journey um, with their dogs. Because for me, the life I get to live with Atlas now and, um, you know, my other dog, Macha now, um, is amazing, right? It turns heads. Um, it inspires other people. And I love being a part of the process of watching people become empowered to become the trainer for their own dog. And I think that, um, not only does that benefit the lives of, <laughs> does that benefit the lives of our animals, but it also benefits, um, our, our, it benefits us as people because we learn a lot about ourselves when we learn how to work with animals and, uh, we learn how to communicate with them and to how to establish relationships and leadership. And I think those skills are invaluable. So. Uh, that's kind of what got me started in dog training. That was a great question. Thanks for asking that little canine trainer. I think a lot of dog trainers have different journeys as to how they get into this. Um, for me, the, the bottom line and the undertone that uh, I want to get across when it comes, if there's anyone else out there that's interested in, in training or learning more about training, um, you have to kind of think to yourself, well, what does a dog trainer do? And so when I wanted to learn more and I wanted to become a trainer, right? I asked myself, well, what, is, what do the best dog trainers in the world do? And, you know, fortunately, I was friends with a few of them, so I got to look at their daily lives. But I just immersed myself in that world. Um, you know, I, I went and got in bite suits, and I learned about scent detection, and I practiced some scent detection, and I would get out and do some tracking, and I'd do obedience. And I more so, more than anything, throughout the time I was building my previous company, um, I filmed all these videos, right? I, I filmed every single piece of content that was, you know, distributed was filmed, you know, with me behind the lens and then taking the raw footage and basically consolidating it down into bite-sized information that people would want to share and consume and could get value from. So um, it taught me a lot about how to also educate around the concept of dog training as well. So for anyone out there that's looking to, to become a trainer or get into training, um, you know, a lot of times one of the best things that you can do beyond, you know, paying and going to school is to use the skill set that you already have to provide value to other people that you can learn from as mentors. Um, and that's, you know, that's a lot of what I did to um, expedite my ability to learn and to uh, gain knowledge from other people that I was really inspired by. All right. Coaches TV asks, how much of a challenge is it to add a second dog puppy with our existing 1.5 year old dog? Well, I think this is going to be one of those classic answers where it all just depends, right? Um, it depends on how obedient and how well-behaved and mannered your year-and-a-half-year-old dog is. What I will say is that a lot of times people are interested in getting another dog because they feel like the dog that they have is needs a friend or is bored or uh, that it might help the, older, the other dog's behavior or something like that. Um, and so I don't think it's much of a challenge if you're already doing all the right things with the dog that you have and you're just excited about the idea of adding another dog to your pack, right? 
um, I don't think it's a challenge at all because you'll already be used to doing all of the right things. You'll already be educated. You already know. You'll have done the research and the diligence, and you'll have made the decision that, hey, this is a no-brainer. This is going to enhance my life and get me closer to the, the lifestyle that I want, right? Um, for me personally, I enjoy two dogs. I think having more than that would be overwhelming for me. Um, and so, you know, I think it's like a deliberate decision, right? But um, if you ask yourself honestly and you say, hey, you know, I think I'm not really sure why I'm getting this other dog. And also, if you feel like there's an opportunity to um, double down and, you know, give that time that you're thinking about distributing to now two dogs and just allocate it to your one dog, I think that sometimes you'd be surprised how far uh, you can take just that one dog, right? And uh, how much that will actually increase your level of fulfillment and happiness um, without taking on the, the additional commitment um, and sometimes burden of having another dog in the mix, right? Um, so with that context being said, right, you know, to recap the, the first layer there is, you know, asking yourself, why, am I, why do I want another dog, right? Um, and I think that if you have to ask, is it a challenge? Then I don't know if you're quite in the position or you're quite ready to be considering that, right? Because um, it shouldn't be a challenge, right? It should be something that you're, um, well, not that it shouldn't be a challenge, but it shouldn't be um, something that you, that would, the level of challenge with it shouldn't be something that would dictate your decision whether or not to do it, right? Um, because everything's a challenge. And I think that we, um, we take on challenges sometimes that we're not prepared for when we haven't uh, thoroughly thought through all the different things, right? So um, with that being said, some of the challenges you'll face when adding another dog into the mix, you know, one of those would be just the environment changing, right? Um, you're now, like I mentioned earlier, dividing your attention amongst um, another dog. And so depending on the temperament and personality of the dog that's, you know, been living by himself or herself for a year and a half, this might affect their behavior in some regard. So you're going to have to deal with that variable change. You're then going to have a, a puppy, right? So that's going to um, cause a challenge in the sense that they add a level of stress and add a level of attention and care that you're going to have to adapt to. Um, you know, so there's a variety of different variables that you have to consider, right? I would perhaps recommend making a T-chart of the pros and cons and, um, maybe using that as a way to help clarify with yourself, you know, if it's a good decision or not, or if it's the right time, you know, you want to think about the living environment you're in, right? Um, you know, all these things can dictate how much of a challenge it will be um, and will help you to make the best decision for you and your family. Good question. Uh, Raylan asks, my dog is really protective over our backyard. When she is outside on a long line, I like that you mentioned that, she runs and checks the fences. When my neighbors go in the backyard, she reacts by barking and jumping up. So um, this is great uh, in, in a sense, right? It's not great that your dog, of course, is uh, being reactive to your neighbors and is uh, checking the, the fences, so to speak. But one of the good things that you mentioned is that she's out on, uh, she's out in the backyard on a long line, which means that uh, you have the capability of holding her accountable to a behavior, right? So um, a lot of times, one of the, I won't say easiest, but one of the simplest ways to start course correcting reactivity and some of these tendencies 
is to um, have really strong obedience, right? And so, um, working, and so working on your obedience um, outside of the backyard environment is going to be a great way to um, hold your dog accountable, right? And then be able to use a combination of leash pressure and that prior work to uh, give your dog something else to do, right? Some, give them a job to do that isn't uh, reacting and barking and jumping up and what have you. Um, you might want to consider shortening that lawn line so that your dog simply doesn't have access to jump up on the fence and, uh, you know, participate in that self-reinforcing behavior. Uh, but another thing that you can do is um, just keep an eye on your dog, right? And to even perhaps um, try to get your neighbors in on it, depending on your relationship with them and say, hey, you know, I, I know this must be kind of a nuisance and you know, I certainly don't like it. Perhaps you guys don't either. Uh, you know, I'd love to coordinate some time for me to work on my dog and, you know, um, test some test some things out. And so um, those are some of the things that I would recommend um, to start working on that, right? Uh, I think that'd be a great way to start approaching that issue um, without it being super cumbersome, right? And some of the stuff that you can do in terms of the um, obedience is practicing a really strong down command, um, doing some tether decompression. Uh, place command, all those things in conjunction are going to give your dog a lot of clarity on what's expected of them. Um, and when your dog knows how to be correct, it's a lot easier and more fair to hold them accountable to a, a certain standard of behavior um, when you need them to. So a great question. I hope that that helps. All right. Papa Adon asks, any advice for recall, not food or treat motivated? So with recall, um, it's extremely important that we, as owners, have the ability to hold our dog accountable, right? Just like with the last question, if there was no long line on the dog and the dog is being reactive and is uh, jumping up on the fence and all that stuff, you know, and there's no leash, right? We can shout and we can yell. We can run out there and shoo the dog away with our hands. But, um, you know, dogs really understand leash pressure and physical, physical um, pressure, right? And so, having a leash on your dog is the ultimate way to hold them accountable to a behavior and also give them a lot of clarity on exactly what is expected of them, right? Especially when it comes to recall. Um, I would not practice recall without a leash on your dog um, until they're ready and they've demonstrated consistently and reliably that they understand the recall commands. Um, because what happens if you try to recall your dog and your dog doesn't come, They've just learned that they don't actually have to come. And so that marker word, that recall command loses value the more times that you have to repeat it, the more times that they get away with not coming um, or recalling. And so when you have a leash on your dog, you physically are able to um, require them to come back, right? And in order to do that, you can use kind of a nagging pressure, right? Give them that nagging leash pressure, that um, negative reinforcement that they can have to uh, basically um, to avoid that pressure they realize they'll have to just come back to you and as soon as they start moving in your direction and start recalling you know you just basically release that pressure and um, the release of that pressure in this case is reinforcing so uh, when it comes to recall you know i would have a leash on your dog and then you know once they come back to you give them praise if they're not food or treat motivated perhaps have a toy if they're motivated by toys um, a lot of times though, if your dog's not food or treat motivated I would also look at the environment that you're in, right? You might be trying to practice recall in a high distraction environment and it's, it's throwing your dog off and preventing them from learning. So um, in this situation, you know, we want to consider those three Ds of dog training that we often talk about, which is 
distance duration and then distractions, right? And every time you change one of those variables, right, or every time you change the level of distractions, you have to lower your expectations of the, uh, the amount of distance and the amount of duration that your dog is going to be able to maintain a command because um, the environment is going to drastically impact their ability to perform at the highest level. Court Canine asks, have you ever, ha- how have you handled burnout in the past, even if it wasn't training related? This is a great question. And, um, I can't say I've been burnt out from training related stuff because a big part of how I'm building my business is to make sure that I don't burn out and to make sure that, um, you know, I don't, uh, overburden myself. Um, but I love that, that question because I think it's, a, it's something that a lot of people deal with, whether they're just a dog owner, whether they're a dog trainer, perhaps, especially if they're a dog trainer. Um, but I think at some point or another, we all deal with burnout. And I think that, the more that we go through burnout and we go through challenging situations as people, the more we're able to kind of see the challenge on more of a whole life cycle and know where we're at in the part of that cycle, as opposed to um, it being this really scary thing, right? Because um, once you understand that, you know, it's all burnout to some degree is part of the process, um, you know, you don't, it doesn't have to be so daunting because you kind of know that um, there's something good coming right behind that, coming right behind that, right? Um, I how do I handle it though? I like that question a lot. And it's have me, it's have me think a little bit about how, how do I handle burnout? Um, sometimes in my life I can say I've handled it much better than others. Right. Um, a lot of times when I'm confronted with burnout or feelings of burnout, um, it's an indication to me that there, a change needs to happen. Right. And personally, I can tell you that I'm someone that tends to resist change, um, which for better or for worse, um, you know, is something that I think has benefited me, but has also made me, you know, steadfast and also trying to see things through and see the best in things. Um, but you know, oftentimes that feeling of burnout is an indication that something needs to change. It means I have too much on my plate. And so when I, when I realize that I have too much on my plate, I, I ask myself, you know, how can I, you know, redistribute this plate, right? How can I, um, what are the most important things on my plate, right? You know, let's think about it if it were food, right? You know, well, if I look at my plate and I've got, you know, basically all rice and just a little bit of meat, well, you know, I'm just, I shouldn't get rid of the meat. I need the meat, you know, I need the protein. So I need to get rid of some of the rice, right? So I think that um, when I'm feeling burnt out, I say, that, you know, the, the, under, the underlying bottom line here is uh, if you're feeling burnt out, it's a good time to look at how you're managing your time. Um, I try to really audit the ways that I'm spending my time. And then I try to buckle down on the things that are getting me results, right? Um, when I'm feeling burnt out, I take a step back and I focus on the things that I can control. In my life, I tend to feel burnt out when I feel like there's a lot of things happening that aren't within my control. And for me, it, it helps me to double down on the things that I do have control of. And two of the things that we do have control of in our lives, if we're fortunate enough, are what we put in our mouth and what we do with our body. So I always go back to trying to get in really good shape to dial in, you know, my nutrition and the way I'm eating. Um, and I find that when I do those two things, I feel more successful. I feel more energy. I feel like I'm doing all the right stuff for my, myself. Um, you know, that not only helps my brain when I'm eating whole foods and doing those and exercise and not as well help my brain to function better. But, um, when you feel successful and you build a habit of that and you do it for a week, then you're more likely to do it for a month and then so on and so forth, right? Until you've rebuilt this um, this habit of not feeling burnt out and feeling successful and feeling like you're on the right path. So uh, great question. That's personally how I try to approach it. 
Um, sometimes, like I said, I'm better at it than others, but, um, you know, those are, I try to, you know, really dial in on my discipline and, and build good habits. All right. Flynn O asks, how did you get started in your dog training business? Are you self-taught or did you attend a school of some type? I'm looking to into this as a career change. Um, great question. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but when I got into starting my dog training business, um, I can say that there's a, what I'll talk about real quick is the concept of the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's something that I've become familiar with over the past year or so. And it really is true. Um, Dunning-Kruger effect is basically in layman's terms. It's, it says that, you know, the more of something, you know, the realize the, the less of it you realize, you know, right? So when we start something new and we start getting results, we tend to think, oh man, I got this figured out. This is, this is, this is great. Um, and then when you really get into it, you're like, I really don't know anything at all. And you start to have that imposter syndrome, right? So when, uh, like I was talking about earlier, when I started the, the first dog training brand, Canine Performance, um, we had such quick success with uh, marketing on LinkedIn and, you know, starting to train some dogs and making money that I was like, this is, this is so easy. <laughs> training dogs, no problem at all. And um, little did I know how many challenges, right? How many different things uh, there are to building a successful, long-standing dog training business. And so as more challenges um, developed as we started scaling and building the business, the more I found myself needing to network and go study under other people and um, attend other you know, uh, facilities and just be a part of the community in a deeper way to really learn from people that have been doing this for decades. Um, I mentioned you know, Jerry Bradshaw's name earlier. I'd probably say he's one of the guys I've learned the most from, and he's been running his business for, I want to say 25 years now, at least 20 years. And, um, you know, being able to watch how someone has done that and, you know, become a thought leader in this space has been very beneficial. And, you know, I can, you know, he's a very generous person with his time and his knowledge. And so I'm finding a mentor and finding people that are happy to let you kind of climb on their back and, you know, see the world through their eyes is really helpful. And, um, skipping over some of this, the easy mistakes that are, that are easy to make. Um, what I'll say is that if you're interested in making this a career, um, one of the best things to do is find a, a sport club around you um, because a lot of times uh, some of the best trainers are participants in these different dog sports. And uh, when you go to those, when you, you know, kind of participate with a club or you study from a club or you just attend, you know, uh, when they're working their dogs, you'll learn so much you'll learn so, so much um, because you're going to be able to watch these nuances. You'll watch how they train, how they overcome different challenges. And uh, you also just get to mingle and talk to a lot of different people that are probably also, you know, uh, working training businesses, you know, full time. So I would say um, attending like a PSA club or um, you know, IPO club, Schutzen or whatever you can find around you and just making a few friends. And from there, you know, you let your curiosity and, and passion for, for change drive your, um, you know, drive you forward from there and, and you'll find your way sooner or later. Um, that'd probably be my advice. K80 Poo, shout out to K80 Poo, great friend. My dog is a genius in the house, but when I try to train outside, he gets super obsessed with light reflections and shadows. Any suggestions? Hmm, well, and I know your dog's a genius. I've seen you, I've seen you work them before. Um, that's a challenging one. You know, um, there's not a whole lot that you can do about shadows and light reflections, right? Other than to try and avoid uh, perhaps those types of areas, right? Um, 
I think to some degree, right? When it comes to what your expectations of your the expectations are of your dog, it's important that we, you know, manage those expectations based on the environment, right? And so, you know, depending on the problems that you're dealing with outside, right? You know, if your dog is very skittish of these different types of things outside, then of course we want to practice some confidence building activities, right? Um, but if it just comes down to the fact that your dog won't do some kind of advanced obedience trick or anything like that, you know, with the presence of a reflection or shadow around, I might just lower my expectations and, and just, you know, say, hey, you know what, that's okay. You know, we've all got, you know, our superstitions and fears, and things like that. But I would counteract it with just a ton of confidence building. And, um, you know, unfortunately, things like reflections and shadows are just things that we can't control. And it's also kind of hard to um, discern where, you know, why your dog might have that superstition. A lot of times, you know, people that use the laser pointers to try and play with their dogs, they can create, you know, they can create that superstition. Uh, with their dog and create a, a downstream problem later on. But um, I think I'd have to have more context. But generally speaking, you know, we want to practice on different confidence building activities, perhaps in the presence of, um, you know, the the light reflection and light reflections in the shadows. And, you know, of course, having a leash on your dog and being able to give them physical guidance is going to be one of the easiest ways to continue encouraging them to remain focused and engaged with you. Um, and, the you know, if they're getting too distracted to be motivated by treats or affection or anything else. So Sawyer Newman. Eyebrows looking Chris. <laughs> Thanks, Sawyer. Hopefully the the beard and hair are too. Just got a yeah, funny story. So Atlas and I, um, we we won on Facebook this uh, it was really random. We won this um photography portrait package. Like I'm talking like high-end portraits like museum quality prints the ones that have like the big frames around them and the light up top like in an art gallery like we won this package of for like a free shoot and and it's coming up this friday so i was like well i need to like look portrait ready so atlas got groomed today i got groomed today i'm so excited for this portrait session um, because if there's like one thing that i wish i could have done is when aurora was alive i wish we could all had portraits together and so when this opportunity pops up i was like i'm so in for this um, because I just know it's going to be so meaningful down the road. And supposedly these portraits that they print, like the art that they create is supposed to last for like 2000 years minimum. Not that of course I'll be around that long. Uh, I don't think at least, but it's nice to know that this portrait of Atlas and I could perhaps be around for 2000 years. Who knows what it might be worth someday. Um, so just a side note there, but thanks Sawyer. <laughs> um, looks like we're at the end of our questions for today. Really enjoyed you, you all participating and jumping in here and vibing with me on this new little setup. I've been recording this whole thing. I'm going to try and toss it up as a podcast and not overthink it. Uh, let me know if this is something interesting you guys think would be cool as a podcast just to have kind of these like Q&A um, question and answer sessions. Maybe we'll shorten them up and keep them topic-based next time. You know, next time I do this, I'll probably throw something up in the question uh, in the questions box on my story with a topic and then I'll pick some of the best questions that pertain to that particular uh, topic. And then we'll just do it like that. I think it'd be really cool to do a giveaway of just some uh, virtual sessions and then record those and doing that as well um, would be really, really cool. So uh, court can canine really looking forward to speaking with you soon as well. If you're another trainer or you're someone that just wants to connect DM zero is open. I'm pretty responsive there. And um, if you're looking for training, virtual sessions, anything like that, you can, check out the link in my bio. I just threw up some merch as well. Some people were asking where they could 
get the hat that they always see me wear. So I put it up on, on the Shopify. So if you want to purchase one, you can grab a hat there. It's a link in the bio. We've got a few pieces of merch up. And very soon we're going to be having all of the, the pins and the stickers and some of the cool memorabilia that I was showing recently as well. And I'm very excited for that stuff. So um, for anyone listening to the podcast version of this, for training, whether you're anywhere in the world, you can book a virtual session at hybridcanine.com. Uh, or if you want to train with us in the Raleigh area, you can also visit hybridcanine.com and simply fill out the form there and we'll be in touch with you right away. And outside of that, uh, we will talk to you guys next time. Peace.